Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You're about to hear a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 29th. 2019 here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Towns and cities often struggle to encourage investors to develop in low-income communities, but the federal tax overhaul enacted in 2017 provides incentives to investors who take a chance in these areas known as opportunity zones. Today, we learn more from the State Department charged with promoting economic development in Connecticut, known as the DECD. We'll also hear from towns in the eastern part of the state that have designated opportunity zones. How do they compete with larger cities in attracting investors? We'll find out later. First, we wanted to learn more about this federal initiative. So joining me now by phone is Margaret Anadu, head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so if someone is not involved in economic development for a municipality, if they're not uh, an investor, they may not know what an opportunity zone is, Margaret. So let's start there. Uh, what exactly is the opportunity zone program? And then how were these areas designated around the country? Sure thing. So, so as you mentioned at, at the outset, so this was part of the 2017 tax overhaul. I think it surprised uh, many folks were sort of tucked in there. And what the program did was it allowed governors around the country to take a relatively short period of time. It was only um, only a few months to select one quarter of the low income communities in their state and designate them opportunity zones. So starting with what a low income community is. So these are areas where the poverty rate is 20 percent or above or the income levels of those individuals and families relative to the broader area is only 80% of the median or below. So governors, you know, uh, took their time and selected their zones, and we've come up with close to 9,000 opportunity zones around the country. And, you know, just to to share a little bit about what these census tracts look like, you know, 75% of them are in metro areas. Uh, They're home to 10% of the country's population, so that's roughly 32 million people. Um, And just to give you a sense of the level of distress in some of these communities, you know, homes in an opportunity zone relative to, you know, just the average census tract around the country are 50 years older than the national average. Um, Another kind of telling stat, 38% of adults in opportunity zones are not working. So these are these are places that are certainly in need of investment and in need of capital. Now, coming and up, so, oh, Margaret, I just want to let our listeners know that coming up, we're going to hear from David Corris, who's Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development, who's going to tell us more about these specific zones in our state. I uh, didn't mean to interrupt, but uh, I wanted to ask you, when we think about the tax overhaul and uh, you know, h- how exactly does this work to try to get investors interested in these opportunity zones? Absolutely. So, so past the selection of the zones, then the next step is how do you get that capital to flow? And so the, the intent of the program was to take capital that has long been sitting on the sidelines and incentivize it to invest in a long-term way in these underserved areas. And so the, the kind of bucket of that capital that was selected 
was unrealized capital gains. And so just to put a, a number on that, there's there are many that estimate sort of unrealized capital gains in the country today at above $2 trillion. And so for investors, and this can be an individual or a corporate family office, who basically realize a gain and take that capital and invest it into one of these opportunity zones, they get pretty, you know, three pretty substantial tax benefits. So the first one is that they don't have to pay that original capital gains tax. So let's say, you know, you, you have, you know, you've, you've acquired a good amount of Apple stock. If you sold that and did not invest in an opportunity zone, you'd, you'd pay a pretty hefty tax bill day one. And so by investing in an opportunity zone, one of the benefits is that you have more capital to invest because you're not paying that tax day one. The second benefit is that if you hold that investment for five to seven years, you also get to reduce that original tax that you pay in 2026. And then the last benefit, which we think is the most substantial, both from an economic perspective and an impact perspective, is that if you hold that investment in the opportunity zone for 10 years, you don't pay any capital gains tax on that investment. So it has this dual benefit of incentivizing folks mm. to really invest in a patient way, so to really hold for 10 years, but then also giving that economic incentive in not having to pay that final capital gains tax. So, Margaret, uh, obviously investors can make money from this investment if they uh, hold on to it for at least 10 years, as you mentioned. But when we look at, when we drill down to local communities and the people who live in these communities, uh, what are the benefits to them uh, if you have these outside investors coming in uh, looking to either you know, build uh, mixed income housing or to open a business? Yeah, so that the benefit is getting that capital. So, so I don't want to go back too, too far in time, but if you look at the opportunity zones, there's significant overlap with the exact same communities that the government redlined dated back to the 1920s and 30s. So these are communities that have not benefited from, from new housing at the same rate as other places. They've not had the new construction of strong schools. They've not had capital coming in to invest in starting new business and growing new businesses. So the, the real benefit to the communities is the capital in and of itself and getting that new development through capital and getting those businesses. Now, you know, you, you use the word, word outsiders, which is a, um, I think it's a real trigger in these, in these conversations. I do not think it is going to be the most beneficial for the structure to be the outside capital sort of blows into these communities without the clear direction and participation of those communities. So there's, there's no one who knows better what is needed in, you know, the outskirts of New Haven or central Brooklyn or, you know, the ninth ward in New Orleans, other than those residents and those community organizations who've been in those communities for decades. And so who um, then is, takes that role, that lead role? Is it, say, the state of Connecticut? Is that the local municipal um, leader who makes sure that uh, if there are particular projects that uh, will be invested or come to a particular neighborhood, that it's, it's good for, for local residents? So, so we've seen, well, I, I first say and think it takes a village, all of those people. And we've seen different models across the country. So, so one thing that we're noticing as we're meeting with economic development agencies and housing agencies around the country is there are a lot of, there are a lot of entities that are playing some catch up. So we've, we've been investing in low-income communities really prior to this incentive for almost 20 years. And so there are many municipalities and places around the country where 
folks are pretty organized. There's a great kind of communication collaboration among community organizations, city level government and state level government. And there are places that are really, you know, developing those muscles now. And so I think where we've seen it work the best is when you have really government at the city level. And so that's city hall, the local city housing agencies, the local economic development agencies working with the private anchors in those locations. So whether it's the educational institutions, the healthcare institutions, um, and then the, the, the existing business community, all of those entities working together with a direction and strategy that is, mm. that is delivered from the state level, given that the state right, was, was the entity that kind of selected the zones you know, across the entire geography. And so you really, you really need to see all those pieces to get come together. And it really depends on, on the need. So, for example, there are many of these communities that were housing is a real challenge. So I'll just give an example. Downtown, downtown Newark, right? A lot of downtown is, is, is an opportunity zone. Prior to just, you know, five, six years ago, there hadn't been new construction built in downtown Newark since the 60s. And so you can imagine in that conversation, the housing entities at the city level have to be at the table. And so it really just Mm -hmm. depends on that local opportunity zone and its challenges. Again, on the phone with me is Margaret Anadu, head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs, as we take a look at what opportunity zones are uh, here on the show around uh, the state of Connecticut and uh, the country, part of the 2017 tax overhaul law providing uh, investors incentives to invest in uh, distressed communities, low-income communities. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Pat's calling from New Haven. Pat, you're on the show. Thank you for taking my call. I wanted to just note that in most communities in the state, there was very little public process, and so the designations were handed out before people in neighborhoods even knew it, and some neighborhoods that could really benefit from it were left out. And with the historic tax credits now also taking opportunity zones into account, uh, it's unfair, it seems to me. And so far, um, last time I checked anyway, there wasn't any kind of second round opportunity for neighborhoods to try to get themselves included. So it's just, um, as your guest was pointing out, neighborhoods, um, matter and um, you know looking at who was included and who wasn't included uh, in terms of the historic redlining and poverty it's unfortunate well, Pat, thank you for raising that point. Uh, Margaret Anadu, uh, again from uh, Goldman Sachs, head of the Urban Investment Group. Uh, did you want to respond to uh, Pat's point? I did. I, I, I did. So I'm sure I'm sure David, who will be on later, can kind of comment about the specific zones and how they were selected. But one thing I'd, I'd like to say to Pat, and I think this happens, unfortunately, every time there's a significant new incentive, and this, of course, is it's you know it's the largest kind of federal-based tax incentive in decades, is that it's one tool. I'm very excited about Opportunity Zones. I'm excited about anything that's going to drive more capital into these communities. But at the end of the day, there are many low-income communities around the country, right, a full 75% of them that were not chosen. And so we can't take our eye off the ball in terms of focusing on 
communities across the board. And so whether it's, you know, new markets, tax credits, or, you know, just mission-driven equity and, you know, Community Reinvestment Act-driven capital, there are many other sources of capital that are available for communities across the board. And certainly within many of the mission-driven lenders and partners and institutions that we work with, you know, we're also trying to pay attention to the fact that we can't we can't forget about the low-income communities that are not opportunity zones, and I think that's really important. Well, Margaret, I wanted to ask, uh, when we think uh, it might be something that's common when you think about uh, low-income communities, people may think of parts of uh, cities like Hartford and New Haven. But then, you know, what is it about this program that can really entice an investor to look at a rural community uh, not very close to an urban area? Um, because maybe it's more desirable to look at a city versus, uh, say, eastern Connecticut, which we'll be talking about later on today on the show. Yeah, so so the we've been and we've been thinking a lot on our team. We've been thinking a lot about sort of the intersection of kind of rural poverty and those challenges with opportunity zones. So, you know, I want to be upfront. I think one of the challenges with opportunity zone investing, and I think in, investing period is in rural areas, is the scale. One one of the problems with the investing community broadly, you know, everyone loves a large transaction, right? You're going to spend the same sort of a, a amount of effort and structuring and diligence on, you know, a $50 million deal as you do on a, on a million dollar deal. And so I think that is one of the reasons that investment often gets driven to urban areas where deal sizes are just larger, costs are higher, and so you can put more money to work. What I will say is I think there's a real opportunity uh, no pun intended, with opportunity zones in, in rural areas as it relates to infrastructure. So we've seen a lot of really exciting opportunities with broadband where, you know, some of these things can be larger deals that can impact a large rural area. And then when we talk about the 10-year hold period, some of those infrastructure investments really lend themselves to a longer hold period. And so I think there's some really exciting opportunity there um, in the infrastructure space. And Margaret, before we let you go, I'm just curious, again, this is part of the 2017 uh, tax overhaul law that went into effect. So how how have investors been responding? So it's been, um, so there's been, uh, I would say there's been just a whole host of interest from all kinds of investors and fund managers. And I, and I think, and I think there's been a lot of press around how it's moving slower than people thought. I think one thing for people to keep their, uh, their attention to is the fact that this is, still relatively new, right? When you think about capital formation, first, they're just understanding the structures and how the funds can actually work. And it was only in the last few months that I think we got a round of regs out of Treasury that really answered a lot of the questions. And so I think there's been a lot of excitement and focus, but less um, right activity on the ground. We, we had a really kind of great advantage in that we've been investing in these communities, these really the same communities for 20 years. And so we've closed uh, 12 opportunity zone funds, the majority on balance sheet, and also starting, you know, to have our third-party client capital because investors have really been um, you know, reaching out to us with a lot of interest. So I think we're just really, really at the start of the program. And I think the investor interest to date has been, has been very encouraging. Margaret Anadu, again, is head of the Urban Investment Group at Goldman Sachs, uh, giving us a primer on what exactly opportunity zones are. Uh, And we thank you, Margaret, for joining us today. 
Thank you so much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to learn more about opportunity zones in Connecticut and hear from local economic development officials about their efforts to attract investors to low-income communities. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 29th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our last guest, Margaret Anadu, says 10% of Americans live in low-income areas where unemployment rates are high and economic growth lags. The federal tax overhaul in 2017 attempted to address this in a program known as Opportunity Zones. It aims to encourage people like real estate developers and venture capitalists to invest in these areas and in return receive tax breaks. We wanted to learn more about the specific Opportunity Zones in Connecticut. So uh, first joining us by phone is David Corris, Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development, known as DECD. David, welcome back to the show. Great, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So tell us more about uh, Connecticut's Opportunity Zones. Uh, When we look at uh, the map of our state, where are they located? Sure. So there's 72 census tracts that are designated as Opportunity Zones, and they're in 27 municipalities. They're in every corner of the state, from Stamford and Norwalk in the southwest to New London and Groton in the southeast, several in the capital region, and and some in northeastern Connecticut in places like Putnam and Mansfield. Uh, We were eligible to uh, select up to 25% of the zones that met the socioeconomic characteristics established by the federal government, and we worked hard to do so in places that were aligned with our other objectives, like transit-oriented development and waterfront recapture, and near our anchor institutions, like Margaret mentioned, our universities and hospitals and, and higher education. I'm not sure if you heard uh, the caller in the previous segment uh, who felt that uh, the way the state designated opportunity zones, it left out uh, certain communities in need. How do you address that concern? Also, uh, she said that there wasn't any public input uh, to that process. Yeah, so I did hear that question, and and I'm glad she asked because there's been a lot of um, you know a lot of questions about sort of how they were selected and whether there's opportunity for more. So first and foremost, the way the process worked in the prior administration was a solicitation was put out to all municipalities that had zones that met the socioeconomic characteristics. We received applications from the vast majority, um, and they prioritized. So the municipalities each identified uh, the census tracts within their communities that were eligible that they wanted designated. We then worked off of those priorities to select the most that we were capable of selecting under the federal rules, which was 72 tracks. So it was really up to the municipalities, and, and I, I know that some did have a public process associated with that, others didn't, uh, but the state was really reliant on municipalities to garner that local input in setting their priorities. Um, in terms of designating more, uh, we are hopeful that over time the success of of this incentive uh, leads to congressional action, which would allow for further designation. But until there is another bill through Congress, uh, we are uh, limited in the number with those that are already designated. And so I'm curious, uh, with these designations, again, uh, has there been movement? Are there particular investors looking to at a, at a particular opportunity zone now in Connecticut? 
Yeah, so there's a lot of activity. You know, there's been, um, I think things have moved slower than people had hoped or, or anticipated, largely due to the pace at which the federal uh, guidelines and regulations have been coming out and been finalized, and investors don't like uncertainty. So the more certainty exists um, through the way in which the federal government and the Treasury and the IRS are going to treat this, uh, the more likely we are to see activity. But there's a lot of people looking, and there's a lot of interest, particularly, as I said, in those communities that have a clear vision um, for where they want to go. And that's one of the most important points that you know I want to make sure to make today, and it goes to your earlier conversation about public input and you know whether or not outside investors are aligned with the vision of the local community you know at the end of the day all of these developments and all of these investments and, and business opportunities are still subject to the same local regulation that any other project would be. So things like zoning still govern what can or cannot take place in, in municipalities. So we've been working closely with those 27 municipalities to make sure that they're engaging their local population and local stakeholders in crafting a vision for the future of their community, investing in infrastructure that helps realize that vision. And in that regard, opportunity zone investment and opportunity fund investment taking place in their communities is a, is a key implementation tool to help them realize their vision. Um, so, you know, no one can kind of come in from outside and develop a project that isn't locally desired because it's through the participatory planning process and through local regulations like zoning that we can still govern uh, how development takes place within our communities. That's David Corus, who's Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development as we learn more about opportunity zones. Again, uh, distressed communities uh, where they're uh, hoping to take advantage of a federal initiative out of that 2017 tax overhaul law uh, to attract investors to those specific communities. Uh, David, you've mentioned municipalities several times. Let's bring in uh, a couple uh, for their perspective. First, uh, Jim Bolano, Economic Development Director for the Town of Wyndham, Connecticut. Uh, Jim, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. Also with us is Paige Bronk, Economic and Community Development Manager for the town of Groton, Connecticut. Uh, Paige, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'll start with Jim. Uh, tell me more about, uh, again, efforts in the town of Wyndham. Again, you are designated as an opportunity zone. And so what about this program are you looking uh, to see happen in your particular community? And you know, has it been a, uh, a slow go for you? Sure. Uh, well, um, you know, as David mentioned, there's 27 municipalities that have opportunity zo zones in them. So the opportunity for all those towns will depend on on, on what's happening in that town. For Wyndham, it's uh, the opportunity zone really lies in our in our downtown or historic Main Street area. So that's going to translate uh, for the most part into a housing opportunity, and that's where we've seen the most activity. We we actually do have a developer coming in um, looking to leverage opportunity zone funds to do a major project downtown. And when you say a major project, what do you mean? Can you tell us more? Sure. His his vision is to do a, a total of about 415 market rate housing units downtown in five phases. In the short term, he has two phases, and he's already been through uh, planning and zoning on both those projects, and that's going to amount to two separate locations, uh, about 200 units, mainly geared at um, undergraduate and graduate students at Eastern Connecticut State and UConn. Mm. 
Mm. That sounds like a, a good project. I'm just curious when we think about, uh, again, people who live in particular communities for a long time, uh, one economic development is good to hear that market rate is coming in. But what about concerns about pushing out people who've been there for a long time, who may not be not be able to afford uh, to live there, depending on how successful this uh, development project becomes? Sure. Well, in Wyndham, we kind of lie in, in a unique position. I think we are the third um, largest community as far as affordable housing. We have about 29% affordable housing in um, in Wyndham. So from that perspective, you know, we've always embraced this idea as being kind of an urban hub in eastern Connecticut, and therefore we are a central location for social and human services. We, we do embrace that role. But uh, on the other side of that, you know, we, we, we do need growth, and we need to grow our grant list because we do have a, a large not-for-profit presence. So, you know, at 29% affordable housing currently, we think we've, we've done our part in that respect. And so market rate is something that's um, imperative for Main Street uh, revitalization. Uh, Paige Bronk, again, is with us also uh, from the town of Groton, the Economic and Community Development Manager. So tell us a little bit about uh, your Opportunity Zone and what you're hoping uh, to bring uh, to Groton, Paige. Sure. Uh, somewhat piggybacking on what uh, Jim had mentioned and also David, uh, we had uh, applied to the state and were fortunate enough to be selected to have uh, one of our eligible areas be designated as an opportunity zone. We clearly uh, are a job producer. We have Electric Boat, Pfizer, the sub-base. Um, but simply because we have a strong workforce doesn't necessarily mean that we've yet close the loop economically, we do have demands. Uh, similar to what Jim mentioned, we also have a high percentage of uh, subsidized housing units at about 21%. So when we talk about the need for housing these days, really it deals more with market rate housing to try to satisfy the demands of our younger growing workforce that would be at electric boat in dealing with uh, submarine production and also Pfizer and others. Um, we have about 80% of our, commu our jobs are held by commuters these days, which is a real concern for us. We'd like to diminish that, uh, decrease that number so that we can close the loop. Housing within our Opportunity Zone is definitely a large push, mixed use, and also retail. But how do you get investors interested in, in Groton, so to speak? Because it is on uh, the eastern part of the state, and you mentioned that there are, you know, obviously EB is there and the sub base is there, but trying to get uh, investors interested in bringing their projects to Groton. Yeah, we identified a few years ago that Groton probably is not really on the map. We've spent a while trying to do a better job in branding and marketing and getting our name out so people can uh, identify with the community. Uh, we do a lot of uh, trade shows uh, outside of Connecticut. We have a lot of marketing material, um, a new website, uh, exploremoregroton.com. So We've, we've done a pretty good job with that. We have some local incentives. The state has incentives. So the Opportunity Zone is another layer, that uh, another tool that we can put in the toolbox um, in trying to do matchmaking with interested investors. So the state has taken the lead in trying to attract uh, investors to Opportunity Zone areas. 
Um, I think our local and state collaboration in conjunction with all of the tools and incentives, that is probably our best bet in working with these, in, these investors who are looking for key opportunities. That's Paige Bronk, uh, Economic and Community Development Manager for the Town of Groton. Also with us on the phone is Jim Bellano, who's the Economic Development Director for the Town of Wyndham, Connecticut. Uh, Jim, we talked about uh, some of the projects, uh, this developer who's interested in market rate uh, housing uh, in the Town of Wyndham. Uh, but I'm curious, what else do you want to see from the state of Connecticut, particularly the D- DECD, in terms of, of helping uh, municipalities uh, really uh, you know, get the most out of this particular program? this Opportunity Zone program? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Um, the state is actually doing exactly what it, it, it should be doing in, in this context, because remembering that, you know, the Opportunity Zone incentive is really a private incentive. It's individuals trying to defer and excuse capital gains through the, the federal tax code. So the state's role is, is ancillary, but what, what David and DECD are looking to do tomorrow, for example, in a, a forum in New Haven, is to get investors and developers uh, together. And they're also, I don't know if you've spoken about it, but he, they're launching this website where you'll have uh, mapping and listings of opportunity zones in the state. Um, that, that's an important role for the state to kind of harness and be a, a centralized location for that information. Otherwise, what you have is you, you'd have, you know, the 27 towns out there kind of on their own trying to do this. And as, as Paige said, we all do our best efforts through marketing and trade shows. But to have the state as a partner is really key because the dollars are so large and, and these funds are national that if somebody can come in to the state of Connecticut and look at a central location, that's going to make our job a little easier. Again, you're hearing from the town of Wyndham and also the town of Groton here on where we live. If you live in those particular towns, and this is the first you're hearing about Opportunity Zones, I wanted to go back to David Koros, Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development. Uh, David, I'm curious, with all of this attention on Opportunity Zones, it it does seem like a no-brainer that municipalities and and the state uh, should try uh, to make use of uh, this federal initiative. But also, I'm curious how this, uh, this plays into, is it a new strategy from the Department of DECD uh, in previous administrations, uh, getting a lot of uh, flack for uh, giving incentives to companies uh, before uh, their promised jobs uh, come to fruition? Uh, I'm just curious if you could talk more about uh, if this is a new strategy for DECD. Yeah, so this is just a new tool in our toolkit, essentially. And and as you uh, mentioned, under Commissioner Lehman and uh, Governor Lamont's leadership, we are transitioning our approach to economic development away from some of the types of incentives that we used in the past uh, to new types of tools that are more uh, performance-based and, and uh, more uh, delivered, you know, following uh, the production of jobs. And so this is just one additional tool that uh, essentially the federal tax code has bestowed upon us that we can add to that toolkit um, when we look not only to, you know, grow and retain and, and attract companies, but to do so in places that are of statewide significance and places that may have been lacking uh, external investment or, or capital mobilization over the last several decades. Mm. Uh, for people who live in Connecticut who may not uh, actually live in an opportunity zone, this may be music to their ears because it's not state taxpayer dollars right. being used to incentivize businesses to come here, David. Correct. Yeah, this is, um, as as Margaret mentioned in, in the opening segment, you know, this is an attempt 
by the federal government to mobilize the potentially up to $2 trillion in capital gains that have been essentially sitting on the sidelines and to direct that to the communities that are that are most in need. And one of the most important things that we can do in that effort, given that the benefit uh, is greatest if you invest in these communities for a minimum of 10 years, as Paige and, and Jim were describing, is to really tell the story of Connecticut and its communities and make that case that in the 2040s uh, and 2030s, our communities will be of greater value and provide greater prosperity to their residents um, than they do now or in the 2020s. So we're in, this is a, this is a long game and one in which, you know, we're looking for opportunity funds to be our partner in uh, bringing capital to the state to realize the visions that our communities already hold for how they can be of greater value to their residents and their businesses in the coming decades. I'm curious, David, if you could talk more about, you know, how this uh, program is regulated, you know, when this was first uh, brought up, uh, when uh, Congress and, and President Trump administration was looking at uh, this tax overhaul, there was concerns about, you know, is this a program that's just going to serve as another tax shelter for wealthy investors? Yeah, so this is, you know, a continuing concern, to be frank. Um, you know, we don't yet know the the scale of kind of reporting and, and metrics that are going to be required. Um, we're still awaiting those, those federal guidelines. Um, but that's important because we want to make sure that these investments are having the kinds of co-benefits, social, environmental, and, and economic, in the communities uh, in which they take place that they were intended to. And, and if they don't, we don't want to advocate for the continuance of this program. And if they do, we want to make sure that it expands so we can designate 72 more zones. Um, within our state. Um, but from, from our perspective, you know, zoning and, and the state regulations are the best tool that we have available to ensure that the capital that does flow to our state is doing so in the kinds of projects um, that we want to see in our communities to best elevate prosperity and, and social equity and environmental quality. We're getting some uh, good comments on social media from our listeners. I want to first go to Brian. Uh, he writes, I live right between Wyndham and Groton in Norwich, been here for 30 years and always thought we never tapped into anywhere near the potential Norwich has to offer. And he wants to know if there's any plans uh, for Norwich uh, uh, coming down the line. What can you tell us, David? And maybe I can also go to our uh, other guests if they've heard of anything because of where they are located. First, David. Sure. So first and foremost, I just want to make clear that Norwich is one of those 27 municipalities, and they have three zones uh, within their community. And so they have the opportunity to capitalize on this uh, new tool and uh, that was afforded to us by the federal government. Uh, can I go to, uh, let's see, Jim uh, from uh, Wyndham and Paige from Groton. Let's start with Paige first. Sure. The first thing I thought of um, was that Norwich uh, is on the Thames River, and um, we have focused on the Thames River Innovation Place, although there has been uh, initial focus uh, on Groton and New London as a part of that Innovation Place. We have often discussed Norwich and how we want to do a better job in including them with uh, the growth in the region. And the last comment I would say on that front is, uh, regarding um, co-work space and uh, Foundry 66 is definitely uh, something in Norwich that people are proud of. Here in Groton, 
We have BioCT Commons, which is another incubator co-work space. And we have uh, an idea of trying to create one in New London as well. So we don't look at each one of those co-work incubator spaces as one-offs. They're very much part of a system. And we need Norwich as a part of that regional system to help drive our economy in this area. And Jim Bellana, who's with us from the town of Wyndham, Connecticut. You know, during our coffee break, we learned that Willimantic is part of the town of Wyndham. <clears throat> Any, uh, you know, interest in maybe expanding Opportunity Zones to that part of Willimantic, Jim? Sure. Uh, and uh, and David makes a good point. And, you know, this is a census year, and so there is an opportunity to kind of adjust the census tracks with, at the census time. You know, censuses are kind of arbitrary. They're based on streets and population, and, you know, they're, they're not a perfect uh, set. So well, we'd like to maybe adjust our census line in the short term to include a property that's right uh, next to where the Opportunity Zone ends. But in the long term, I think uh, if we do expand Opportunity Zones, I certainly have uh, one or two tracks that meets the criteria that we'd like to, uh, we'd like to add in. I want to go back to David Corus, Deputy Commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Economic and Community Development. Uh, Christina tweeted at us and wants to know uh, more about you know, the efforts to develop without destroying the historic fabric and feel of the Connecticut town. Opportunity zones can help with that, but we also need to encourage preservation. So can you talk about uh, you know, that concern uh, from people who, who wonder you know, what can happen to historic parts of their community uh, when there is that interest in investing? Absolutely. You know, preservation is very important to us. It's the historic fabric of our communities that adds a great deal uh, of their value, which make them so attractive places to live and and to work. And one of the immediate things that we did uh, in early legislation this past spring upon uh, better understanding the Opportunity Zone incentive was increase the value of tax credits, historic tax credits, when done in Opportunity Zones and to uh, target uh, specific allocations to them. So additional resources are available to ensure that when Opportunity Fund investments are taking place in communities with great historic character, uh, there's even more state resources available uh, to uh, to rehab historic properties alongside. Uh, Jim Bellano, you mentioned earlier a uh, developer interested in, in uh, the Main Street area in the town of Wyndham. And so how do you balance concerns from maybe some in your community that they don't want to see historic buildings uh, uh, have to be uh, raised, but in, in fact trying to incorporate that uh, with the plan? Sure. And we had a specific instance of that because one of our uh, projects involves two uh, historic buildings on Main Street called the Hale and Hooker Hotels. And, uh, you know, our district is, is a strong historic district. We have many buildings, uh, something like 42, that have been maintained since the 1980s. But, you know, there is a tipping point sometimes when buildings become underutilized or quite um, honestly, in dangerous condition, um, you know, you need to have a change. So I think we need to have balance, and uh, and I think we've done that in town with this latest development. The the one one building is going to be raised. It's uh, taken down. It was, it's in terrible condition. The Hooker Hotel, and the other, the Hale Building, is going to be um, maintained. The facade and and our structure is going to be maintained for the development. So I think balance is the key, and I think we all have to be reasonable when it comes to that. I want to thank Jim Bellano, Economic Development Director for the Town of Wyndham, for joining us today. Thanks, Jim. Yes, thank you very much, Lucy. Also, Paige Bronk, Economic and Community Development Manager for the Town of Groton, Connecticut. Paige, we appreciate your time. 
Thank you very much. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. David Corris from the Department of Economic and Community Development is going to stick around uh, for this next segment because we want to actually talk more about how other states are looking to promote opportunity zones. Is there something Connecticut can learn from New Jersey? Don't roll your eyes yet. We'll talk more about that after the break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to a rebroadcast of Where We Live. It originally aired October 29th, 2019, here on Connecticut Public Radio. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, today we've been learning about efforts by the federal government to spur economic development in distressed communities. It's an initiative that was part of the 2017 tax overhaul law that allows investors to avoid some taxes if they fund projects in areas, uh, low-income areas known as opportunity zones. We wanted to hear how uh, other states are rolling this out. So joining us now by phone is Tim Sullivan, Chief Executive Officer of the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me on. I should mention uh, you used to be the deputy commissioner of DECD, and you left to return to your home state. Is that right? That's right. So I didn't. Uh, your little jab at New Jersey during the intro. <laughs> I, I took a little. I took a little personally, but I'll, I'll give. Uh, since I used to be a, a nutmegger, I'll give you. I'll give you a, a pass. Yeah, give me a pass. Thank you. So tell us about uh, New Jersey's opportunity zones. We've been learning more about uh, how Connecticut hopes to see this uh, flourish. But what are you guys doing in New Jersey? So we're 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 all over this. Uh, we've got the benefit of being the home state of one of the co uh, principal sponsors of the, of the Opportunity Zone program, Senator Cory Booker. So we've been we've been all over this, and our governor uh, uh, Phil Murphy became governor right as this program was rolling on. So this was an early priority for us uh, in the administration. And uh, we have about 169 of these uh, census tracts across the state, and about 75 different cities and towns uh, spread all throughout the state. So we've got a, a big diversity of types of places where, where this is happening, from distressed urban communities all the way to rural communities. I'm sure that's similar to how the, the zones in Connecticut were allocated. One of the things we're really trying to do, and I think David talked about this in, in some of the prior segments, um, and, and it's not surprising we're both trying to do this, is really connecting um, sort of investors and project opportunities, uh, because there's an enormous number of potential investors out there, folks who have deferred capital gains who can participate in this marketplace. And there's no shortage of projects that need investment. Um, but it's um, once you get below a certain scale, it's harder for those you know, investors and, and projects to find each other. So we stood up a, uh, an online marketplace, which I was casually referring to as sort of a Craigslist for opportunity zones, but is, is fancier than that, uh, where municipalities and developers can, can list projects and opportunity funds can list their um uh, can list their attributes that they're looking for and hopefully make some matches. That's one big one big thing we're doing. The other is capacity building. I think David mentioned this earlier as well, helping our cities and towns get ready for this opportunity uh, and market and showcase the opportunities that they have within their their city or town is a big uh, is a big ambition here because lots of these places have never seen this kind of investment opportunity before. And if they're not ready for it, uh, might miss the opportunity. Keep using the word opportunity. That's, so that's what, I mean. what have been the challenges, Tim? We, we saw a story in Politico that reported on uh, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's plans to raise uh, as much as $250 million for real estate deals in these uh, opportunity zones. But the efforts have, have gained less traction. I'm just wondering if you could talk about that. Well, I think some of the... Um, some of the uncertainty that still surrounds the program uh, probably hasn't uh, helped uh, sort of turn the jets fully on 
uh, yet in terms of the investment flows. So some of the some of the rules and the transparency and reporting things that uh, David was mentioning earlier, I think we agree are kind of X factors that until those get clarified a little bit, I think some investors will sort of stay on the sidelines. Um, and generally speaking, it's a, it's a new market. It's a new it's a new product. So we saw this you know a decade and a half ago, two decades ago with the new market tax credit program. It takes a while for there to be sort of the the habits and the routines and the processes that get built around a program like this to to, to happen, and not not everyone wants to be kind of the pioneers and and figure this out um, and and kind of go through the the pain of working with you know lawyers and developers and investors to get this all documented the right way. So it takes some time, and I think that marketplace will develop, and you know success will breed success here. Uh, Tim, as the marketplace develops, do you see that there's more interest from uh, real estate developers? Yeah, I think the early wave has been almost entirely, at least in New Jersey, has been, and I think this is true nationwide, has been far more focused on the on the real estate opportunity than the sort of the, the corporate or the sort of the the venture capital dimensions here, which is somewhat disappointing. I think there's a huge opportunity to infuse growth capital into uh, businesses that have been, you know, family businesses that are neighborhood businesses in these communities where there may not be an opportunity to pass that business down. You know, the, the, the second or third generation may not be interested in the, in, the, in, the, in running the business anymore and how are they going to find investors. This is an enormous opportunity. The, the rules aren't as clear and tight as they probably need to be and certainly weren't initially. So that's been a bit, a bit slower. So real estate has been the big focus for now. I wanted David Corris to respond, who's still with us, Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development. Uh, what do you think about uh, what Tim's been saying about how the initiative is rolling out in New Jersey? Yeah, well, I think I think Tim's right on. You know, we've worked hard to collaborate with one another and with our colleagues, um, you know, throughout the Northeast and throughout the nation, because as Tim described, you know, this is a new incentive and one in which the market is still trying to figure out. And, and frankly, the states are trying to figure out, given how different it is from typical programs where federal resources, you know, flow through the state and we have a very active hands-on role in determining how they get allocated to, to projects. Here, we're very much hands-off. We're very much on the sidelines. So we're trying to figure out how we can support the marketplace um, and, you know, steer it potentially towards the ty- types of objectives we and our communities are looking to uh, achieve, but without having the formal role that we would typically have in, uh, you know, prior programs released by the federal government. We just have a couple minutes left. We just got a tweet from Steve who writes, these opportunity zones are exactly why I'm excited to be a commercial realtor. Great things coming to build up our communities. Is that the sentiment that you're hearing, uh, David? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, You know, we're seeing seeing that kind of interest across the board. Uh, Before I let you go, uh, Tim Sullivan, again, Chief Executive Officer of the New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Uh, We had asked our uh, guests earlier to talk about some of the concerns uh, that uh, may be raised from communities who hear about uh, Opportunity Zones, including gentrification. How are you addressing that in, in New Jersey? Yeah, I think that's something we're we're pretty focused on. We're very focused on as well. Um, Governor Murphy down here has talked about uh, wanting to reward folks who have fought and stayed uh, through difficult periods in these communities, not not replace them. Um, and so we, I think that starts with being very purposeful and 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 first of all calling calling that by its name from the outset is really important. So we provided uh, the the organization that I work with has provided some funding uh, to municipalities to do some some planning 
around what the communities really want to see. You know, it's, it's pretty unlikely that someone's going to, you know, hop off an airplane and wander through a town in New Jersey or Connecticut and come up with a great idea that has never been thought of before for that community, whether it's a supermarket or affordable housing or whatever else. So, the, you know, communities need to have the resources to drive and, and, and determine what their vision, vision is for, for these sites. So we think if we give folks some, some resources and some and a platform to determine for themselves what they really want to see happen on these sites and in these in these zones we think you know we've got a chance to get it right but it's for sure a real concern that we're we're laser focused on again i want to thank uh, tim sullivan for joining us today from new jersey and david Kors, deputy commissioner of connecticut's department of uh, economic and community development uh david and tim thanks for coming on today Thanks, Lucy. Today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Uh, special thanks to Jared Todd on the phones today. Our technical producer today was Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>